Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Graham Nash, who's been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, once with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and then again with the Hollies. He supported his latest solo album, his first in 14 years, by doing an intimate tour. Welcome, Graham. How are you doing, G? I am great, my friend. There is no metric for measuring such things, but I can't imagine that any other musician has performed in Colorado as many times at as many different venues and in as many different configurations as you have, from theaters to stadiums, from Crosby, Stills, and Nash to Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young and Crosby and Nash yeah, and yeah. Graham Nash. Yeah, we're old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's get you in the country before we get you in Colorado. You gotcha. were born and raised lower class in post-war England. You and your school boyfriend, Alan Clark, have no problem naming your biggest musical influence. Yeah, who didn't love Buddy Holly? We loved his music. It was simple. Buddy was one of us. He wasn't Elvis shaking his ass. He had glasses and he wore a suit. And his music was incredibly simple. When I was growing up, if you could play three chords, you could probably play 90% of Buddy's music. And one of the things that not a lot of people know is that he only recorded for 15 months. That was it. Dead. 21. Gone. 15 months. All that music. Incredible. Cause that'll be the day when I die. We started the Hollies in December of 1962. We were going to be the Deadbeats. <laughs> we had a drummer, Don Rathbone, and his family owned a mortuary. And so he had the van. Right? He wasn't a great drummer, but he had the van, so he was in the band. And so when we were at the 2Js, which was the club that we first started, we were sitting by the side of the stage, and the DJ comes up. He goes, OK, I'm about to introduce you. Who are you? What are you called? We kind of put our heads together, and we realized we didn't have a name. And then Don Rathbone suggested the Dead Beats, and it didn't kind of fit our music somehow, deadbeats. And then we said, we know it's December, it's the holly bush with the little red berries on there and Buddy Holly. We call ourselves the Holly, so we did. That was really a bullet dodged, Graham. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> Graham Nash, the deadbeat, yes. Oh, man. And the Everly Brothers, the act that set you on the path to being one of the best damn harmony singers on the planet. Equally influential? More so, because of the harmony. In 1962, they came to play at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester, which is where I'm from. Me and Clark, he said, not only are we going to go to the show, saved up and bought tickets, but we're going to meet the Everly Brothers, right? Oh, yeah, how are you going to do that? We didn't know, right? So they did the show, and two things happened. First of all, there was no tour bus outside the gig. So it wasn't like they were all going to do the show and get on the bus and drive to another city. So we knew they were staying in Manchester. So the Free Trade Hall is only 100 yards away from the biggest hotel in Manchester, the Midland Hotel. So we went, I'll bet that's where they're staying. It's obvious, right? So we went up after the show and we talked to the guy in the uniform at the front of the hotel. He kind of blew it. He said, oh, yeah, well, they went out for a drink. So we knew that they were staying there. So we decided that we're going to wait. Now, it was about 20 after 1 in the morning. 
We had obviously missed the last bus home. It was raining and slightly snowing, sleeting as we called it. And so we knew that we had a nine-mile walk home and we didn't care. We were going to wait for the Everly Brothers. At 1.20 in the morning, they came round the corner. They were a little drunk. They had been to a nightclub. And there on the steps of the Midland Hotel was me and Alan Clark and Don and Phil Everly. And they're talking to me like I'm a person. And it was amazing to me. And I learned something very interesting that night. If you're a fan of somebody, someone's a hero to you, and you meet them, you're never going to forget that moment. And if they're dicks, it colours your life. But they weren't. They called me Graham and they called Alan Allen. And wow, the Everly Brothers said my name. Don't forget, this is just me and Alan Clark with two acoustic guitars. We weren't anybody, right? But we were talking to the Everly Brothers. Four years later in 1966, the Hollies had become the Hollies, and we had several hits by that time. And we were on a show called Sunday Night at the London Palladium. That's kind of like an Ed Sullivan show. Plate spinners and barking dogs and accordion players playing Lady of Spain. That kind of a variety show. Pete Seeger was the headliner. So the Hollies finished the sound check around 4.30 in the afternoon and we're waiting backstage to see Pete and the phone rings backstage and our tour manager, Rod Shields, was closest to the phone so he picked up the phone. Yes? Yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's right here. And he hands me the phone and I go, who is it? He goes, it's Phil Everly. I said, look, don't piss me off like this. This is, <laughs> no, come on, that's not nice. He said, it's Phil Everly. I pick up the phone, I go, hello. He goes, hey, Graham, it's Phil. And of course, I recognize his voice. And I said, okay, why are you calling me? He goes, well, me and Don are in town. We're about to make a record called Two Yanks in England. Do the Hollies have any songs that they haven't recorded yet? Maybe we'd like some. So we went down to the Ritz Hotel in London, a couple of acoustic guitars, and we played them about 12 songs, and they liked seven of them. And we went, wow, that's fantastic. Because this was only four years later after first meeting them. I said, great, when are you going to start recording? He said, tomorrow morning, nine o'clock. <laughs> so me and Clarky go down there, and we're watching the Everly Brothers make this record. There were several session players there. Reggie Dwight was on piano, was Elton John, right? Jimmy Page on guitar, John Paul Jones on bass, and they were session people. You could take a $5 bill out your pocket and you could have Jimmy Page playing for you, right? It was insane. So that was 1966. I, I before, in 1992, I'm playing in Toledo, Ohio. Phone rings in my hotel rooms, very strange. Hey, Graham, it's Phil. <laughs> I said, okay, great, um, why are you calling me in Toledo, Ohio? He says, well, you know that place that you and David and Stephen are going to play tomorrow? I said, yeah. He said, we're playing there tonight. Do you want to come? So me and my friend Mac get on the Everly Brothers bus and we drive down to the gig where, where they're going to play. And I don't know whether you know much about rock and roll, but at five o'clock there's usually a rubber chicken dinner. And we're sitting down there. Don looks at me and he goes, so uh, what are you going to sing with us? I'm dying inside. This can't possibly be happening. This was a dream of me singing with the Everly Brothers. And I'm trying to be cool, and I go, um, which song? I like So Sad, you know. I love that song. He goes, E okay, the key? I go, yeah, great. I have a board tape on cassette 
of me singing so sad in three part with the Everly Brothers, and it will knock your ass off. I bet. Because you've got to understand, you know that I wanted to pay them back for everything that they'd stood for in my life. You know I wanted to be good. You know I wanted them to shine. A couple of years ago, Phil had just passed away. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame were doing an Everly Brothers tribute show in Cleveland, and would I perform? Of course. So I go... And Don is kind of shell-shocked. He was a little introverted. He had said that he was never going to sing again since Phil died. I said, well, that's okay, but he made a big mistake. He stood next to me at the microphone. So we do bye-bye, love. And when we come to the bridge where, there goes my baby with someone new, that part, I get Don from the back and I push him to the mic. So he's got to do something. And he started to sing the audience went crazy hearing that fantastic voice. So there's four things about the Everly Brothers. Yes, you could say they were very influential in my life. I'm going to cross off the list of people I worry about here. Yes. Um, you and Alan formed the Hollies, as stated, one of the seminal British invasion bands of the 60s. All the classics, Carrie Ann, On a Carousel, that unbridled harmony on bus stop. It took us an hour and 50 minutes to cut that. There were only four tracks. Yeah. <laughs> Easy to <laughs> fill four I'm tracks. Nowadays, you can have a thousand tracks in your phone. That's true. Not then, not in those days. You became creatively frustrated I at did. some point. I did. I had written a song in Yugoslavia called King Midas in Reverse. I thought it was a good song. I presented it to the boys, and we could have what I thought was a really good record of it. It was a little psychedelic, but it was a really good record. But it only got into the top 30, and the Hollies, of course, were used to getting in the top five with every single song that we did. When I was with them, we had, I think, 15 top 10 records or something. After it only got into the top 30, they stopped trusting my musical push. And I'd written this song in 66 called Marrakesh Express. And I brought it to the lads and I played them my demo of it. I think one of the worst things that you can do to an artist is give them self-doubt because it stops the creative process dead in some cases. And that's what started to happen to me because I thought, well, if they don't like Marrakesh Express and they didn't like King Midas in reverse and I wrote a song called The Sleep Song where I take off my clothes and lie by your side and they won't sing that, I'm going, I can't be any good. I guess I'm just not as good as I thought I was. Donovan Leach and his manager, Ashley Kozak, I was hanging out with them around that time and they did nothing but encourage me. And so did Crosby. I played the last show with the Hollies on December the 8th in 1968. Crosby was there in his cape. The rest of the Hollies hated him being there. He was the one saying, hey, this Marrakesh Express, that's a pretty good song. They're the crazy people. So in a way, David saved my life because he took away that self-doubt. And December the 8th was the last show I did with the Hollies. And on December the 10th, I was in Los Angeles with David and Stephen and never went back. Forming one of the first supergroups, Crosby, Stills and Nash, David had been with the Birds. Stills had been in Buffalo Springfield. You guys gelled immediately. That Marrakesh Express song, the first hit from the Crosby, Stills and Nash album. Put you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express. Put you 
Stephen Stills played most of the instruments on that first record. Obviously, Crosby and I played rhythm guitar on our stuff, on Guinevere and Lady of the Island and Pre-Road and Marrakesh, etc. But Stephen played the majority of the other instruments. We had us three and Dallas Taylor, who was our drummer, and Bill Halverson, our engineer, and that was it. Stephen played bass, he played piano, he played B3, he played rhythm guitar, he played lead guitar, he played percussion. We get to the end of making the record and we know we've got a smash on our hands because we've already been selling lots of records and we have an ear for what would sell. And we knew that that first Crosby, Stills & Nash record probably was going to sell a lot of records. So when you come to that conclusion, you know you've got to go on the road. Now then, if Stephen played all the instruments, what the hell are you going to do? <laughs> right? David and Stephen were at dinner with Ahmed Erdogan in his house in New York. And after dinner, Ahmed looks at Stephen and he says... I know who you should get in the band. Really, Armour, who's that? Huge gap. And then Armour says, Neil Young. Stephen goes, wait a second, I just went through madness with Neil. He wouldn't do the TV show, he turned up late. You, you want me to do this again? Yeah, man. <laughs> Neil's the guy, man. Neil's the guy. And it was Armour that really set that whole thing in motion. And I'd never met Neil. I knew who Neil was. I had a small record player when the Hollies were playing in Canada. I had a Buffalo Springfield Again record. I was listening to Expecting to Fly constantly. And so I knew that Neil was a great writer and a great singer, but I'd never met him. How can I invite somebody into the band that I've never even met? I've got to meet this guy before we can make this decision. So I went to breakfast on Bleecker Street with Neil. I would have made him king of the world after that breakfast. He was so funny. He was so self-assured. He knew what he wanted not just Crosby, Stills and Nash and this other guy, he wanted his name in there and I like that and that's how Neil joined. The evolution of concert production coincided with all this. Touring with the Hollies back in the 60s, you were part of the Beatles and Stones British Invasion ferment where you were only obliged to fill theaters with a bunch of shrieking teenagers. You couldn't hear anything. And by the time CSN started touring, rock culture had evolved. There was a consciousness there. You had to go out with the lighting and sound equipment and mm -hmm. crews that the venues demanded. When I was in the Hollies, we bought this speaker system for our voices from Sweden. But it was rather large, and so we would always need help. And, you know, one of the stories I always like to tell is that the Hollies played in Gainesville, Florida, somewhere around 66. We needed help with these big speakers, and so these two little college students had a van. Fantastic. So we knew we could get to the gig, right, with our equipment. And one of those two college students was Tom Petty. CSN opened up for Tom a couple of times on some of those stadium shows and we would share his plane going back to gigs and he mentioned that. He told me he was so proud that he was one of the Hollies road managers. <laughs> <laughs> so the British invasion, very interesting. I still don't understand why all these English people could take all this American rhythm and blues music and sing it with a slight Midwestern accent and then sell all that music back to the Americans. Yeah, we right. never could understand that. Yeah. The Deja Vu album recorded with Neil was a major success, and the two biggest hits on that album were yours, Teach Your Children, and Our House. 
I've always been intrigued by your insight that songs come from the most ordinary moments. Sure, they do. Our house is a perfect example. I'd taken Johnny to breakfast one day. It was a miserable day, as sometimes can happen in Los Angeles at the end of winter. It's not always the land of sunshine. We're leaving the delicatessen and going back to her car, and we passed an antique store, and we're looking in the window, and Johnny saw a beautiful vase she wanted to buy, small little vase, cheap, so she bought it. Got to the car and went to the house in Laurel Canyon, and we got to the front door, and I said, Hey, Johnny, why don't I light a fire, and you put some flowers in that vase that you bought today? <laughs> well, if that's not the first verse of something... <laughs> it did work out. Yeah, it worked out pretty good. Our house took me, what, hour and a half, maybe? You got to prorate that stuff, man. You really? <laughs> Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young began that American tour in April 1970 here in Colorado at the Denver Coliseum. Kind of a tense show. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Stephen hobbled on stage, I yes, believe? Yes, yes. He'd hurt his leg and he wanted sympathy and... He hobbled on stage with crutches. But the whole tour got oh, canceled was, after sucked. a few dates, Oh, right? yeah, after that date. So what went on, Graham? What went on is that Neil didn't like our drummer, Dallas. He didn't think that he could play Neil Young music for shit and told him and said, it's either Dallas or me. Now, what are you going to do when you're faced with a choice between Neil Young and Dallas Taylor? What would you do? Punt. Yeah. Yeah. We punted, but we used Neil as the ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's what happened. There was a lot of cocaine around. It was tense. There was years of tension <laughs> with this band. I don't know anyone that could possibly write the story of CSNY. It's so insane. I don't think anybody could really do it justice. You arrived in Colorado the first time, not to perform, but to go see Stephen up at Gold Hill. Yeah, I did. I had never seen the Grand Canyon, and I lived in Los Angeles. And so me and my friend, tour manager, Mac Holbert, decided that we would drive to Colorado from L.A. and go via the Grand Canyon and see all that. And Mac, my dear friend, had never met Stephen, although he was going to be the tour manager for Crosby, Stills & Nash. So we go and we find Stephen's house. It was in winter, two feet of snow. Mac goes in and I say to Stephen, hey, Stephen, this is my friend Mac. He's going to be our tour manager in the kind of an and I shake hands and stuff. And Mac says, so, Stephen, yes, hi. What's going on? What are you doing? He says, well, I'm just here writing songs and stuff. I've been playing around with this knife. And he had a huge knife on the desk. And Stephen picked it up. I think he may have been trying to impress Mac or something. Anyway, he flicked it up in the air and made a mistake in catching it because he caught it by the wrong end. His hand is completely covered in blood. And this is Mac's first meeting with Stephen, right? You know? <laughs> I think that's where Henry Diltz took that famous picture of Stephen in the snow with the giraffe. That was the first solo album right, with right. Love the One You're With. Right. A singer named Rita Coolidge sang background on that. Yes, she did. And took up with Stephen. You were smitten with Rita. And well, she who was... wouldn't be? She was an incredibly beautiful Indian woman. Well, um, and she was smitten with you, too. Yes, she was, but 
Stephen was a little naughty because I'd arranged to, after the session, the next day to pick Rita up at 2 o'clock and take her for lunch somewhere. And then Stephen called her at 1 o'clock and said that Graham was sick and he can't make it, so... <laughs> anyway, she spent a couple of weeks with Stephen and then realised that's not where she wanted to be. And she and I started a relationship. And before I'd even kissed Rita, I said, look, we can't have anything going here unless we talk to Stephen. I have to tell my friend that I want to spend time with you and you want to spend time with me. And so we went up to Stephen's house and it was a little awkward at first, but I think he finally understood. So Rita and I were together for a couple of years. And to tie that story together, on the cover of Stephen's first solo album, In the Snow, up at Gold Hill, playing guitar, there's a stuffed giraffe. A gift from Rita, And he yes. put it in the picture just to show how mad he was. Yes, indeed. Okay. I'm telling you, it's been, it's been insane. <laughs> you all did solo albums after that break with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. You did typically great work. I Used to Be a King, my personal favorite. I used to be a king. Everything around me turned to gold. Crosby and Nash produced a couple of wonderful albums. Immigration is a buzzword these days, and you're still the only guy I know of who's used it in the title of a hit song. It's both thrilling and a piss-off. It's thrilling that my music has lasted these 50 years, but it's really sad that Immigration Man and Military Madness and Chicago, We Can Change the World, are still so relevant today. It's blowing my mind, frankly. Let me in, Immigration Man. Can I cross the line and break? I can stay another day. Let me in, Immigration Man. You're well known as a political activist and an activist for social and environmental justice. Back in the early 70s, did any specific person or event or cause set the hook? Somewhere around 77, I was in a hotel in Los Angeles called the Chateau Marmont, a well-known Hollywood hotel. Why were we talking about the Chateau? What did I was just remembering half the scenes that went on at the Chateau. <laughs> that's called a flashback. Is that what that's called? Yeah. <laughs> One night, my friend Tom Campbell, who runs an organization called the Guacamole Fund, we've been working with them for 40 years, me and Jackson and Bonnie. We give tickets away to every show, and it raises money for the guacamole. Anyway, Tom Campbell's a hero friend of mine. One night, we had dinner at the Chateau with Jacques Cousteau. And halfway through dinner, I look at Jacques and I say, hey, Jacques, what do you think is humanity's biggest problem? Now, I'm talking to Jacques Cousteau, so I'm thinking whales, I'm thinking fish. And he looks at me and he goes, the nuclear police. I said, what? What do you mean, the nuclear police? I never heard those two words together in my life. He goes, I can envision a time in this country when the police will be able to come to your door without a warrant, open, see if you've got any nuclear fissionable material. I said, Really? Tell me about this nuclear thing. What's going on? So he started to explain what it was, and he put it in the guise of a snake. All the miners that are dying from radon poisoning from mining the uranium to the manufacture of the uranium to the transportation from city to city of the uranium to the waste uranium that we still, to this day, don't know what to do with. And so he started to clue me in into what was really going to be a big problem soon. Don't forget, this is 1977, right? That's really what started Muse. 
That's what started me and Jackson and Bonnie and James Taylor and John Hall trying to bring information about this new madness called the nuclear power industry that was in danger of enveloping all of us. That was a really interesting turning point for me. No nukes. In 1974, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young reassembled for a big-scale tour of stadiums, including Mile High Stadium here mm -hmm. in Denver. Again, breaking new ground, promoters were just starting to exploit the capacity of tens of thousands of people. Accordingly, you guys played three-and-a-half-hour sets, had wonderful opening acts, but that had to be a new baseline for performance to be able to connect. Yeah, but please understand, we'd already done that at Woodstock. Right. Yeah, the second gig ever <laughs> in front of people, right? Me and Crosby playing Guinevere on one acoustic guitar to a half a million people. <laughs> We'd already done it. 80,000 people was nothing. We knew that the Beatles had done Shea Stadium, the Stones had done Hyde Park, but nobody had done 35 of them in a row. When I did the Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young 1974 stadium tour box set, here's what happened. We recorded every show on two track, but... If you know anything about recording, there's very little you can do with two tracks. We multi-tracked 10 of those shows, but they were in very different places. There were some at stadiums, some in big basketball arenas, indoor, outdoor. My job was to make it sound like you're just sitting in the center in the 10th row listening to one show in one place. That was very difficult technically. But I think that we managed to pull it off. I wanted to let America know that, in my opinion, CSNY was a really good rock and roll band. You spent a lot of time up at Caribou Ranch in the 70s, the legendary recording complex near Nederland, Colorado. James William Gersio had transformed that property into a pretty opulent retreat for the aristocracy of pop music, the first destination studio. Yeah, you could go you, there and disappear, yeah. absolutely. And musicians loved that. There was no one around, there was no musicians, there were no fans, there was nothing. It was just this beautiful place to record music. And why would we not love that, right? It was the air. It's different than Los Angeles. It's clean, you can breathe it, it's private. Yeah, and particularly, I mean, what a great musician Dan Fogelberg was from Colorado. And Gersio was a very decent man. Following a riot at a Jethro Tull concert in 1971, the rest of that summer's Red Rocks shows were canceled. Denver officials banned rock shows at Red Rocks for five years, until 1975. But since then, you've played Red Rocks a multitude of times. I believe the first time was sitting in on a Joni Mitchell set. I remember singing, Come on, people now, smile on your brother. Get Together by yeah, the Young Bloods. Absolutely. Dino Valenti wrote Get Together. Do you know he sold it for $50? Do you know how much money that record made? Do you know how many times it's been recorded? $50 he sold it for. 
Crosby, Stills & Nash did many years of arena tours. There was one outlier in 1984. You performed at Mile High Stadium again following an afternoon Denver Bears baseball game. That was our minor league club. That was one of four matchups of a music and entertainment date on the tour. An all-American afternoon at the ballpark for everyone except the token Englishman in the group. You don't even like cricket, right? Much less baseball? It's not that I don't like cricket, but have you ever tried to explain cricket? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I tried to explain cricket to Crosby once. By the time I said, yeah, and on the third day, he was done. <laughs> he was absolutely done. I remember that show because, obviously, after the baseball game, the stage has to be erected in the centre of the... Blah, 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 and the crew get... Blah, 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 and we have to run from one end to the other to get onto the stage, and Crosby slipped and fell. I remember that night very much. You had to do a truncated set. I remember some new material was worked into your catalog of hits, and your contribution was a song called Vote. Hmm. Never did finish it. I should. It's important. One of the things that I'm thrilled about right now is this. Since the Parkland shooting in Florida at that school, I've been amazed at the energy that these kids have. They're beginning to realize that it's not just for grown-ups, this politics stuff, that these politicians are ruling our lives too, and we better get in on this game. So now they're going around the country trying to register people to vote. They're telling people not to vote for politicians that take money from the NRA or the gun lobby. And if they can keep up this passion and this pressure, they can do some serious damage to this. There's one other gig that resonates in retrospect. Crosby, Stills, and Nash were in Denver to perform on September 11th, 2001. What happened on the 10th is that we went to the Monday night football game. The opening night of the season, Denver were playing, I don't know, the Giants, I think. I'm, I'm not a football fan, but the whole band was going, so of course I went with them. And then we walk home to the hotel. It was the Teatro Hotel, I think. Go to bed. I get a call at 7.30 in the morning, and Barry says, are you awake? I said, well, yeah, I guess so. I'm answering the phone. He goes, turn on your TV. Your world has just changed. I turn on the TV and, of course, saw the buildings coming down, and the show was cancelled. We had to go back to Los Angeles. There were no flights. And we had our tour bus, and so we took various people with us. We took Eric Dickerson, who for the Rams. We took K.D. Lang, who had just played in town, and we just took them all the way back to Los Angeles. Yeah, the world changed, didn't it? In Denver, Barry Ullman is a music collector who has become the ultimate collector of Woody Guthrie. Barry has also performed as a singer-songwriter for decades, and he released his debut recording a few years back, and you sang Harmony I on did. the opening track, Image. Lament. Yes, Imogen Cunningham is a very famous photographer. And yeah, he wrote this beautiful song. I'm asked to sing on a lot of stuff. But everybody that ever asked me knows that the song has to be good. And Barry played me this song and I loved it. We finally get to Boulder and I, I put my voice on there and I think we did a pretty good job. She made a career shooting nature and news. Obvious subject matter, but Curtis and Stieglitz and Adams all told her never photograph just to flatter. Image by you're a well regarded photographer and photography collector in the late 1980s. You began experimenting with digital images on your Macintosh computer. You wound up being part of a team called Nash Editions that revolutionized fine arts digital printing. I'm looking at this screen on my little Mac, 
whatever it was, you know, the little upright thing with a tiny screen. And I'm liking some of the images I took. They had a scanning mechanism called a thunder scan. And it was almost like a typewriter. And it would go... And it would print the image. But they sucked. The colours were wrong. It's just awful, right? And so I have this problem because Joni, who is a painter as well as being a musician, had had this show at Parco Gallery in Tokyo selling her paintings. She'd had a very good experience with them, and she knew I was a photographer, and she said, why don't you do a show? And I go, no, nah, I'm too busy with music. And she said, look, do me a favour, send this guy six pictures and let's see what he says. I send him the pictures, he sends it back, want to do a show, here's what we want. Edition of 50, no problem. Size, four feet square, big problem. Who the hell has a darkroom that big? Seriously. Every time I've had a major problem in my life, the solution has been staring me in the face, usually right behind my back. I had a friend, Charlie Werenberg, in San Francisco. He said, hey, have you heard of this new printer? It's called an inkjet printer. I said, I've never heard those two words, inkjet printer. He said, oh, go check it out. I went down to this place who were making posters for the cinema. There was this image being printed. It was a bride with a bunch of flowers. The image sucked. But this printer was like a small washing machine. You put a paper on this drum and it spun and the computer sprayed ink at it and it ended up in 20 minutes as a beautiful photograph. Now, I've got a pretty good eye. I've been a photographer longer than I've been a musician and I couldn't believe this machine. It was fantastic. So I go to the guy that built the machine and I said, OK, how does it do black and white? And he said, wait a second, I spent $32 million making the best <laughs> color printer in the world and you want to do black and white. I said, yeah, and how long do the inks last? I have friends that if their ashtrays are full on their Mercedes, they get another car, but most people want images to last. So we started Nash Editions in 1989 and I still think that we make the best prints in the world. My first printer is now in the Smithsonian. In 2011, you and Crosby delivered the closing address at the University of Colorado's Conference on World Affairs. Ah, uh, yeah. The address called Life Matters. I wasn't sure why they wanted me and Crosby to talk about the state of the world. We're musicians, for God's sake. But we do live in this world, and we're reasonably bright and observant, and we know what's going on. So when we were asked, we thought, we can do this. To see a couple of thousand people there, and you know that they're intent on changing the world and making it into a better place, was great for me and David, and I thought we had a good time. I still have that speech, actually. You're still using your music to reflect the world as you see it. I was intrigued by a song I heard performed live a few years ago called Exit Zero. I wrote that with Barry. Here in Colorado. Well, yeah, and he picked me up, and of course, we were a little herbally challenged, and we got lost completely lost and then we go by this oil refinery that's on fire acres and acres of these pipes with flames shooting out as we're driving by and i'm looking and i see exit zero and i said well i couldn't have possibly seen that <laughs> <laughs> and i look over barry i said did i just see exit zero he said yeah i said wow we gotta write this song <laughs> and, and we did this back tonight Tonight. 
Creatively, you're a pretty happy guy these days, it seems. You've played to hundreds of thousands of people at one time, and now you're playing small, intimate theaters. By design. In support of This Path Tonight, your latest work. A different connection. I like to communicate. People pay hard-earned money to come and see us. So as a musician, what I want to do is, one, I want you to know that I want to be there making music for you. I saw Dylan two and a half months ago. Never said a word. Not, hey, how you doing? Thanks for coming. Nothing. No reaction with the audience whatsoever. And to me, the audience are as much a part of the show as the songs are. Yeah, I don't want you to be looking at me as some rock star up there. I want to be part of all this, part of this music, part of these emotions that are coming from me and the band. What can you do? <laughs> what you gonna do when the last show is over? What you gonna do when you can't touch bass? And what you gonna do when the applause is all over and you can't turn your back on what you face? You bought pot legally for the first time in Colorado a couple of years ago. It's an astonishing feeling. I've been smoking dope for over 50 years and there's always been this cloud, you know, <laughs> not just... <laughs> well, well, yes. <laughs> Let me rephrase that a second. Uh, there's always been this feeling of guilt, of criminality, of, I, listen, I'm smoking this in my car, and in two minutes I could be in a jail somewhere. And then come to Colorado, and, and you can go into a place and buy it without any of that baggage was astonishing for me. I kept looking over my shoulder thinking that this can't be happening. I'm going into a store and buying dope totally legally. This is insane. How many of these states are going, um, excuse me, um, can't we raise all this money for schools and parks and taxes and stuff what, like Colorado's doing and Seattle's doing and Washington's doing? Crazy, eh? It resonates especially given that you wrote Prison Song back in the day. I did. I wrote Prison Song for a kid who wrote me and Crosby a letter, and he was doing 10 years in Texas for one joint. And at the same time, in Ann Arbor, it was a small misdemeanor. Man, we got bamboozled there. The momentum of the world is hard to change. It's a big planet, this. You can do it by a millimeter, but to get that big swing, but it's happening right now, and Colorado is one of the states that's doing it. What's your favorite musician's joke? <laughs> oh, guy right. goes into a store, says, I'll have two of those, I'll have one of those, and I'll have six of those. And the guy said, you must be a drummer, right? He said, how did you know? He says, because you're in a butcher shop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Graham. <laughs> All right, buddy. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music dot org.